Hey everyone, Sarah Peck here, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. One of the themes that's constant here at Startup Pregnant is that there are so many varieties of what pregnancy and parenting and entrepreneurship can look like. The reason we're doing all these interviews is because there isn't one path and there isn't one story or one journey. Today, we get to have a really special guest on the show. Her name is Parijat Deshpande, and she is a high-risk pregnancy expert. So we're going to talk about early pregnancy, having preemie babies, and all of the different factors that come into play when you have a high-risk pregnancy. She is a businesswoman who guides women in managing their stress and anxiety, and she helps women stay pregnant as long as possible, even if they have complications, so they can give their baby a strong start to life. She's a clinically trained therapist. She's a women's wellness specialist, and she's a speaker on the impact of stress on health and wellness. Before that, she has four years of experience as a psychology lecturer at UC Berkeley, and she is the founder of My Sahana, a South Asian mental health nonprofit. She's also a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So in this episode, we get to hear more of her story. She talks about her experience with a high-risk pregnancy, how she had to stop working when, while during her pregnancy, she was put on bed rest, and what she wasn't expecting, but what ended up happening, she had to really stop her life for a while. She had bed rest and experience in the NICU, and then she had a long period of having to stay at home with her kid on what she calls lockdown mode because of health complications and needs. Through that, she also found her legs to stand up again. In this episode, we're going to get to hear her story. And one of the things that she says and that I adore as a philosophy is this. You are the expert on your body, and you are not broken. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Acuity Scheduling. If you haven't switched to a scheduler yet to help you with all the back and forth of figuring out appointments, I highly recommend trying it. Switching to a calendar scheduler changed my life and saved me so much time. So typically, Acuity offers a free two-week trial if you want to give it a whirl, but for startup pregnant listeners, they have a 45-day trial for us. Go to acuityscheduling.com slash startuppregnant and you'll get a 45-day trial. Hey, everyone. Before we jump in, I want to tell you a little bit about the story you're about to hear. We are going to hear a remarkable story about a very premature birth, a baby born right around the 24-week mark. Our guest covers a lot of topics that are new to the show, not to motherhood, but just new to the show. So I wanted to share what they are before we begin so you can get the lay of the land. First, there's a condition called endometriosis, and it is a condition where the inner lining of the uterus grows on the outside walls or outside of the uterus. So the metrium is the lining and the endo means outside. 
This actually happens to about one in 10 women. So about 10% of the population has some experience with endometriosis. And it can make getting pregnant a lot harder in some cases. And it's sometimes really impossible to know that you have endometriosis until you start the fertility journey or without some sort of internal exam. You can't see it on an x-ray or a scan or anything like that. So it's just something, if you haven't ever heard of it, go look it up or listen in to this show and we'll be talking more about it. And then the other thing we're talking about in today's show is premature babies. So premature babies are whenever a baby is born before 37 weeks, that's a premature baby. And about one in 10 babies are born premature. So it's about 10%, although the number varies based on population demographics. So for some populations that don't have access to great medical care or help, they can actually have higher rates of premature births. And then there's a term called micropremies, and this is super, super early babies. They're usually less than one pound, 12 ounces, or they're born before 26 weeks. That's the rough definition. And it's estimated that there are about 50,000 micropremies born every year in the United States. So as always with all of this, I am not a doctor. I am an interviewer and a researcher. So if you want to know more about this, we've got links in the show notes. And also talk to your doctor or fertility specialist if you want more information. Today's story is a remarkable one. We get to hear about Parajat's path through her own journey in endometriosis and her fertility journey and also her little boy. So let's dive in. All right, everybody, I have Parijat on the line. I'm so excited to have her join us today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so glad to have you. I know we have probably 152 things I counted that we could talk about. But the first question I love asking people is, what was your morning like today? What time did you wake up and what do you do in the mornings? So this morning was actually kind of crazy because I ended up waking up at 4.30 because I had a bad dream. Oh, where I was pinned underneath a cloud, which makes no sense. But apparently it was very scary. And so I woke up really early. And as soon as I was up, I was like, all my to do lists are running through my head and I just couldn't fall back asleep. So that's unusual for me. But that's how today started. So then what did you do? Did you start working? I didn't know I forced myself to stay in bed because I knew that my body does not handle it well when I'm up that early. So I just lay in bed and I tried to relax and do some visualizations. And I did fall asleep for a little bit. And then got up at 630, which is my usual time for getting up and getting going. And then what happens? Do you have like a tea? Are you running around the house with a kid? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, more of the second. <laughs> there's there's some running around happening. There's, you know, getting ready for myself, getting him ready for school, packing lunch. He's on a very high calorie diet. So we got to make sure that he eats his entire breakfast, which is a challenge in itself when you're five and you want to run around and everything else is very interesting to do besides eating. And then we've got a couple of therapy exercises for him to do before he goes to school. So between me and my husband, we kind of tag team that and get ourselves or at least they get out the door by 830. Hmm. And then are you working, you're running your business from inside your house? That's right. Yes. Solidarity. Me too. Love (laughs) it, right? (laughs) It's nice. No commute. It's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. So you are a high-risk pregnancy expert and you have 
such an array of experience. And you have your own podcast where you talk about all these things that people who are listening to this podcast, if you want to dive deep, like I highly recommend hers. But I want to ask you today to share your story, your own pregnancy and parenting journey story, because I've only captured snippets of it here and there. Like from what you talk about on Facebook to some of the stuff that I've read, I'm like, wow, she has such a fascinating journey, but I haven't heard it in full. So you have plenty of time. It's a long form podcast. Can you take us through your own pregnancy journey? Yeah, sure. So we've got a couple hours right here, a couple yeah. days, maybe. <laughs> you just sit, everyone sit back, grab like your tea or your wine, Get whatever you need. Here we go. <laughs> It's a little bit of a saga, actually. It went totally not how we had expected. And it really started when I was diagnosed with severe endometriosis. And the doctor at the time who did my surgery was like, you know, you need to start trying to get pregnant. You need to start your family now because you may not be able to if you wait. And this was before we'd even had our one-year anniversary for being married. Like, that was totally not on our plans. We wanted to wait a couple of years, do some traveling. And that was a real huge reality check. And so our timeline got sped up quite a bit. And I went directly to a specialist, a reproductive endocrinologist, because I said, look, if this is that serious, then I don't want to waste my time trying on my own. I don't want to waste my time trying with a general OBGYN trying to help me. Let's go to the specialist. Let's get this figured out which is unusual because I was in my 20s. And that's quite early for a lot of women to end up at a fertility specialist's office. And even he said something about that, like, you're really young. Are you sure you want to? So, you know, we had to have that conversation. We started fertility treatment pretty much within, I want to say, 10 months of that surgery. We did have a couple of pretty awesome trips. We did squeeze in there. We went to Costa Rica. We went to Italy. It was incredible and so much fun. Hmm. I'm glad that we did that because as soon as we started trying to start our family, our first round of fertility treatment, I did IUI with injections and it ended with a ruptured ectopic Hmm. and it was terrifying and it was devastating and it was something that was so not what we ever thought would happen you know, it had to be rushed into emergency surgery. And just the emotional and physical recovery from that was quite long. And it really shook us to our core that, okay, wow, this is really serious, that the surgeon was not kidding, that there are big time problems here that are going to be an issue for us. So it took a few months off. We did one round of IVF and got 10 embryos, which is a pretty huge number for people who do IVF. It's a really good number to have. And we transferred one of those embryos as a day three embryo. We did a fresh transfer and that ended up being our son. Mm. But before we got to meet him, we had so many complications that we had to face. The first of which was called severe ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is a uncommon reaction to IVF. It's a complication that happens, but it's not very common. And that was actually to me, more terrifying than the ectopic because with the ectopic, I knew I would be okay. I could feel it in my body that something was very wrong, but I knew I'd be okay. With OHSS, when I landed in the hospital, when I landed in the ER, multiple trips here and there, something felt very scary wrong. And that I found out that I was pregnant actually because I hadn't even taken the pregnancy test yet. And I was looking like I was about seven months pregnant because all the fluid from your blood, the liquid ends up in your abdominal cavity and it fills it up. 
And so there was like literally one maxi dress that I had. That was the only one that I could wear because I couldn't fit into anything else. I had nothing else that would fit on my body because I looked so big so quickly. And so I went into the doctor's office to do what's called a paracentesis, which is where they drain the fluid from your pelvic and abdominal cavity, which is pretty much as painful as it sounds. It's really awful. (laughs) And I was recovering from that. I remember sitting in the room, my legs were aching. I was super dizzy. My husband was rubbing my legs. He's sitting on the floor, so grabbing my legs. And my doctor comes in. He goes, congratulations, you're pregnant. We both were like, what? What are you saying right now? What? This doesn't make any sense. How is that possible when I'm feeling so sick? Wow. Okay. And, and Wait, so- before we go on, and I, I know there's so much, I want to pause and ask you because yeah. I'm imagining that somebody's listening and they're like, wait, endometriosis, IUI, oh, yeah. IVF, ruptured of topic. Like, what does this all mean? <laughs> what so, is it? Right. And these are really important things that, what, 95% of the population has never heard. Yeah. So can you take us back? What's endometriosis for somebody who doesn't know? Sure. So in your uterus, you've got your endometrial lining, which if you don't get pregnant that month, you shed, which is your period, right? That endometriosis is when the endometrial lining actually ends up outside of your uterus somewhere. So it can be anywhere in your pelvic cavity. In severe cases, it can be like on your diaphragm. I mean, it's anywhere and everywhere. And what happens is when you bleed every month for your period, those lesions also bleed, except there's nowhere for that blood to go. And so you have really like internal bleeding happening and it causes inflammation and scarring and scar tissue that causes a lot of pain and pelvic pain. It causes really heavy bleeding, abnormal cycles, painful bowel movements, painful urination, like a lot of different symptoms for a lot of different people. And how did you find out that you had it? So I have had horrible periods my entire life. They were extremely heavy and I would be bleeding more often than I would not be bleeding. And so there was a huge concern with my doctors of what is going on? Why is this happening? They put me immediately on birth control when I was 17 just to contain the bleeding and you know get my blood counts back up and reach some kind of baseline. But the endometriosis is a progressive disease. So every year, every month, it gets worse and worse and worse. And so by the time I'd gone to do surgery, I couldn't walk when I'd had a period. I couldn't sit. I couldn't lie down. I couldn't eat. It was so disruptive that my entire life had to stop for those seven days. And it was only seven days because I was on birth control. Mm -hmm. And the only way to figure out that you have endometriosis for sure, I mean, all signs pointed to it, but the only way to know for sure is to do a laparoscopy, which is an internal surgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a surgery. They do two or three different small incisions. So it's not a big incision, two little small ones to see what's going on in there. And then what's IUI? I haven't even heard of this. Yeah. So IUI, it stands for intrauterine insemination, which is, I guess, more commonly called artificial insemination, basically where they take a sperm sample and they put it into a long catheter and they inject it into the uterus directly to give the sperm kind of extra boost to be able to reach the egg to fertilize. And you and your partner were doing IUI because of your endometriosis symptoms or what was... Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Okay. I mean, look at this. There's so much here and we haven't even gotten to all of the other things, right? It's a saga. (laughs) Okay. But then you end up with this ruptured ectopic, which is when you have a fertilized embryo or you have an egg, but it's outside of the place where it should be, right? 
That's right. So it fertilizes in the fallopian tube, right? The sperm goes all the way up to the tube. It fertilizes the egg. You have the embryo. And it's supposed to travel all the way down the fallopian tube into the uterus and implant in your endometrial lining, right? And that's how you get pregnant. In my case, what happened was it fertilized in the fallopian tube and then it got stuck there. And the thought is that because of my endometriosis, it found some endometrial lining right there, Mm. which is exactly where it's supposed to implant, except the lesion or that endometrial lining isn't supposed to be in the tube. And so it implanted there and it started growing and the tube is only so big. And so at some point, the embryo outgrew its space and it ruptured the tube. So the tube basically opened and I started bleeding internally. And so there's blood filling my pelvic cavity, basically. Uh, Oh, heavens, that sounds incredibly painful. Yeah. You know, it wasn't so painful. That is one of the symptoms of it. For me, it wasn't so painful, but I could feel something was wrong because I started feeling really faint and really weak. I'm sorry, there's a train coming by. (laughs) (laughs) Keep on keeping on. Trains happen. Yes. (laughs) So I was feeling really weak and really faint. And by the time I got to the doctor's office, the nurse was like, you don't look right. I apparently had become very pale by that point, which makes sense once we figured out what was going on. Did you have a positive pregnancy test? Did you know that you were pregnant? That's the other weird thing. So when I had to test, which was about 14 days after the IUI, I did a home pregnancy test and I called it a big fat maybe. Because if you looked at it at a certain angle in a certain light and squinted the right way, you could possibly see a sign. Mm. And so I did the blood test and it came back positive, but it was a very low positive. And I was doing blood tests every two days because the levels were rising. They're called HCG levels, which is the pregnancy hormone. They'd rise, but they wouldn't rise enough. Mm. And they'd rise and then they wouldn't rise enough. And so it was, well, am I miscarrying? Is this a slow growing embryo? Like what's happening? We did, And that uncertainty went on for about three weeks until the day that I was actually supposed to take what's called the methotrexate shot, which is to stop an ectopic pregnancy. Because at that point, my doctor's like, I think it's probably ectopic. I was about to go get that. And right before that, it ruptured. Whoa. This is the thing that you said was really like more emotionally heavy and it took you a while to recover from. Yeah. This is when you took a couple of months before trying again. Yeah. Yeah. All this happened in January and we didn't start another cycle till April. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. I mean, it took a good like eight weeks to even get my energy back to rebuild kind of my blood stores and feel strong enough to even do it again. But emotionally, it was really, really hard. And for me and my husband, too, because he just couldn't get over the shock of, oh, my gosh, I could have lost you. You could have died because it was such a dangerous situation. The things that women and couples go through in terms of pregnancy, like it baffles me because the questions are always so simple. It's like, oh, are you going to have another baby? And you're like, wait, stop. Like, excuse me. This one took five years. Like, back up. Exactly. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And just the emotional weight, too. It's the timing of it. Some people only ovulate on one side. So it might take every other month. So it's six times out of the year. And there's just so much in here. I'm learning out loud on this podcast, too, while I get to interview people. So then you decide to go back in and try again, but this time you said you did IVF. That's right. So because of the ruptured ectopic, we realized that, well, I lost one tube, obviously, and the other one we found out is likely not working. So had we tried again with an IUI, either I would not have gotten pregnant or I would have had another ectopic pregnancy if it had 
just barely worked. So it just was not safe at all. And actually through my work that I did later and the research I did later, I found out that women who have severe endometriosis should actually not do IUI for this very reason. And I wish I had known that. So for all of you that are listening, if you have severe endometriosis, do not do IUI. It is not safe. Don't do it. Interesting. Yeah. So that's when we moved on to IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. All right. Keep going. I interrupted to get all of those technical terms, like their definitions. But now let's get back into it. IVF, what was that like? Yeah. So that is about as awful as you hear. (laughs) It's a full-time job. You're constantly at the doctor's office doing ultrasounds, doing blood work. You've got injections to do on a daily basis. You feel, I did at least, I felt like a little guinea pig in a lab just poking myself. And it just really took the intimacy of family building completely just chucked it out the door. Like there's no such thing. This is a very medicalized, very sciencey way of building our family. And while we were okay with it, we chose it because, hey, there was really no other way for us to have children. And we really did want to try to have a biological child. That was something that we definitely had to grieve the loss of, that this wasn't just us doing this. And we joke actually that The day that our son was conceived, like we weren't even in the same rooms as each other. We weren't even in the same city. Like I was somewhere, my husband was somewhere and our son was being conceived in a lab somewhere. Like that's just how our family started. Wow. So yeah, it's kind of a trip to get there and to wrap your head around how this all begins. And then he was conceived. Yeah. And then he was conceived. We got the report and he was one of 10. And the day that we did our transfer, our embryologist and my reproductive endocrinologist picked him. He he looked like the best one. So they took him and they put him in my uterus and we just hoped for the best. And a little less than two weeks later, when I had my first paracentesis, which was the draining of the fluid, I found out that I was pregnant with him. Mm. You said first paracentesis? I did. I had four of them. No. Ow. Oh. It was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm like cringing. I just, I'm like <laughs> clenching my butt cheeks because I'm like, ow, like don't go near there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've heard one other friend talk about this and she said it's like the most excruciating, painful. It's like a giant needle in the worst place in the world to drain fluid. And you're like, no, that just shouldn't be a thing that happens. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We're talking about a needle about 18 inches long or so, just right where you don't want it to be. But the only way to actually relieve the fluid from you is to do that. Okay. So you find out you're pregnant and you're in the like waiting room of an ER recovering. So you're like mystified. Like what is this news that you're giving to us? What's going through your mind? And why do you have to have three more of these? So I thought he was lying. I thought he was playing a joke on us because by this point, we had gotten to know him very well. And he was kind of like a friend because we had seen him so many times and so much had happened in such a short amount of time. I was like, he's got to be kidding. He's got to be joke. He's playing a game. Like, that's really mean. Why would he say that? What's going on? And it took us a couple of days when we got home to be like, did that really happen? are you really pregnant? Is that really going on? And I did have to do regular blood tests because with OHSS, which was the complication I had, this is another dangerous complication you could have because it impacts your kidney and liver function. So every other day I was doing blood work and I got to the point where my arms looked like I was a heroin addict because it was just bruises everywhere. It was horrible. I really wish we had taken a picture, honestly, because it's just so hard to explain how awful it looked. But I had to have three because 
it's just a short-term solution. And my OHSS had gotten so bad that I would get maybe two, three days of relief, and then the fluid would start filling back up again. And then they would have to do it again because I couldn't breathe. The fluid was really just pushing up on my lungs so much, and it was getting dangerous. So did another one, got a few days relief, did another one, got a few days relief. And then usually by the end of the first trimester, when the placenta kicks in to produce progesterone, that's when you get relief and you get what's called a P-day, where you finally just like pee out all that fluid because until then you're not able to pee because your kidneys aren't working great and you're not processing the fluid properly. So that is when I finally got relief and that's when that complication was finally resolved. It was around 12 weeks into it. I was going to ask, how does this solve itself? But okay, so now your placenta kicks in and you're pregnant and you've made it through the first trimester and it's probably like still a bit unbelievable, but starting to become real. Tell us about pregnancy. Well, it didn't stop there. Okay. So when <laughs> when I was about six weeks pregnant, or no, maybe a little bit before that, I had my second complication, which was massive bleeding through my pregnancy. And that continued until I was 14 weeks pregnant. So there was an overlap of two complications. And just as OHSS ended, this one was still going on. And then when that one was getting under control, I developed another complication and then another one and then another one. I ended up with eight complications in the course of my entire pregnancy. It was just awful. It was one of those experiences where we would go through different milestones that were supposed to be exciting. Like, hey, we made it through the first trimester. And we would celebrate for like five minutes and then something else would go wrong. Or we'd have a great ultrasound and then I'd come home and then I'd have my first preterm contraction. So I was on bed rest in my pregnancy. My doctor put me on bed rest at six weeks. And he said, if you want to try to do everything you can to save this baby, you've got to stop working and you've got to put your feet up and you've just got to stop which was really hard for me to do because I loved being busy. I thrived on being busy. I had all kinds of stuff filled up on my calendar for work and social life. And we just moved into this new house a year ago and we wanted to get settled in and all of that just completely stopped. Yeah. This feels like the worst comedy of errors. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like, who has had all the complications you have? Like, <laughs> <laughs> the truth is that it makes you an expert in all of these. You're like, oh, no, I've lived them. I've done them. I have all of these I've experiences. But mm-hmm. how do you handle it emotionally when you're going through this? And it just seems like you just keep getting slammed by one thing after the other. For me, I was swinging between two extremes. One was I've got to get through this. I've got to figure it out. And so I was very proactive with my health. I was looking for all kinds of research. I was looking for things that weren't even maybe evidence-based opportunities. I was talking to doctors. I was getting all kinds of information and second opinions and third opinions and doing whatever I could. And then there would be moments where I would just crash and go, I can't do this anymore. Because it's like running 15 marathons, one after the other. And how many hits can you take before you finally just say, I'm done, I can't do this. Except you can't walk away, right? You can't just say, well, I'm done with the pregnancy. No, thank you. And so there were days when I just crumbled and collapsed and just broke down completely, felt like such a failure. I felt so broken. I felt so guilty. 
And I just didn't know how to get through the next moment because it was so, so hard and I was so exhausted. I think it's in those moments. A friend of mine said sometimes watching people who, in her words, she's like just sneezed and got pregnant could make (laughs) her so angry. It's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just that the day is so hard. And then you see somebody else, like the emotional weight of all of that and how challenging it can be for people. Exactly. Who did you turn to? Like, how do you find support? And what do you do to support yourself through like these dips and these really heavy emotional days? The circumstances themselves lended to honestly just a whittling down of our social networks, because there were truly only a few people that could really handle what was going on in our life and really be able to sit with and listen and give that support. And so I had to really get to this place where I I needed to be okay with asking for help. And so I would call on these people, you know, a couple of my friends, a couple of friends who I hadn't known that well before, but because they had gone through something similar or something relatable, we were able to bond over that and really rely on them and text them and say, I'm not doing well today. I'm not doing great today. Are you free to come over this weekend? And having people around was a really big deal for me. And it was really, really helpful just for my sanity to get through all of it, any of it, you know, even those hardest moments, just having people around was really, really helpful for me. Yeah. It's so hard. I think in those moments to, to know who the right people are yeah, and to be able to have them around and witnessing you and that, like, what's really, you know, part of my French, the shit, the shit. Yeah, absolutely. And I really had to get over myself. I wanted to at first be like, well, I'm not dressed properly. Well, I haven't taken a shower yet. Or, oh, I'm still in my pajamas or whatever it is. And at some point I was like, you know what? It's either that or you're going to go through this alone. And you know, you can't go through this alone. You're not going to make it. It's so So that was a huge life lesson for me. Yeah. So keep going. What happened next? So I spent 16 weeks on bed rest at home and I watched all kinds of TV. I was introduced to Netflix at that time. That's when I started watching Scandal, which I'm still watching just out of loyalty at this point. And had friends come over, you know, just got through it. And when I turned 22 weeks, 22 weeks pregnant, that week was a hard week. I had already developed five complications up until that point. And I was contracting and it just felt different that week. And that Thursday, I was 22 weeks and four days pregnant. Something felt wrong. I just knew it. Something was wrong. And I was about to go to bed, went to the bathroom and I saw so much blood. And I said, no, no, something's very, very wrong here. So he called the on-call OB. She said, well, you're already on progesterone. Like, why don't it's so late at night? Why don't you just stay at home and call your doctor in the morning? And what I didn't realize at the time, the reason she said that is because I was 22 weeks, which is periviable, which means it's too early to save the baby if the baby was going to be born. And so they don't really do a whole lot for women in that stage. But I was not okay with that answer. I knew something was really, really wrong and I needed to go in. And so I told my husband, I had, we'd been back and forth to the ER so many times. It was like routine for us. But this time there was something in the back of my head that said this was different. And so I told him, grab your phone charger because I don't know if we're going to be back tonight. And that was actually the last time that I was pregnant at home. Because when I landed in the hospital that night, the on-call OB came in, she checked me and she said, you're three centimeters dilated. And my heart stopped. 
I couldn't believe it. It was too early. It was too early. I wasn't ready for that. I knew something was wrong. I didn't know it was that bad. And so they turned me upside down into a position called Trendelenburg, where your feet are above your head, literally as a way to use gravity to keep the baby in. And they gave me a medication to try to stop the contractions. And the next morning, it was 22 weeks and five days, my OB came and sat on my bed and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, I'm so sorry. She was so sure I wasn't going to make it through the weekend and that I was going to lose my son. And Monday came around. That course of medication had to stop because you can only do it for 72 hours before you have to stop it. And my contractions had gone away. And no one could explain why. They didn't know that what I had done was put myself in this bubble and completely released all the tension that I had been holding in my body because I knew, I knew without a doubt If I had any tension in my body, if I felt any sense of anxiety, if I had any kind of stress, those contractions were going to come back. And I did not want that to be the reason why he was born so early. And so it didn't make sense to them. And they thought, what's going on? We don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. You should have delivered the baby by now. And so we had a great Monday. We just were happy and thrilled. We were talking about, hey, maybe you can go home. It's possible to be dilated and still be at home. Like maybe that's happening. And then Tuesday happened where my water broke. It was 23 weeks and two days along. Oh, goodness. I literally hyperventilated in the room. I wasn't breathing. I couldn't. I Part of me was angry. Like we did not fight this hard through all of these complications and through infertility to lose my son at 23 weeks and two days. I'm not okay with that. How is this happening to us? And part of me was just feeling so horribly guilty that I just let this little boy down. My body just couldn't do it. And so they gave us an option. We had, you know, the neonatologist came and said, hey, if the baby's born right now, do you want to resuscitate? Like, how do you make that decision? We had the decision of should I be on magnesium sulfate, which is the hardest medication that exists to this day on keeping contractions at bay. Comes with horrible, horrible side effects. We had to decide what to do. And so we decided, I remember that moment, my husband came running in and he sat, I've never seen him so scared in my life. He held my hand really tight and he said, you tell me what you want to do. I will support whatever you want. And I remember looking in his eyes and telling him, this baby has survived so much already. We've got to give him another chance. I will take the magnesium and whatever it comes with, we've got to give him a chance because It's my body that's having a problem with this. There's nothing wrong with him. What happens? Was he born? I'm like at the edge of my seat because I don't know this story. (laughs) So when your water has broken, you're about 50% of women go on to deliver within the first 24 hours. Another 25% usually deliver within seven days. And I made it a full 10 days before he was born at 24 weeks and five days. And he was born in 12 minutes, would have been less had the NICU team been ready for us, but it happened really, really fast. My husband wasn't there. He couldn't make it in time. So it was my nurse, my mom, and probably almost the entire L&D team and an entire NICU team in the room found out later that he came so fast, the NICU team wasn't even ready. So they actually wrapped him up in a blanket and carried him like a football and ran to the NICU. 
And that was the end of the pregnancy. And that was the start of my son's life and the start of his fight to survive, to be able to come home. You have this pregnancy, this unrelenting pregnancy, all of these complications, and your baby is born so, so early, so early. So what's his life like? What's your life like? I mean, I've read on the website about the time that you spent in the NICU. Like This is the start of the next part of the journey. What does that look like? The NICU became our home. We lived there for 12, 13 hours a day. Because he was born so early and he was born so sick, for two months, the first two months of his life, we did not know if he was going to come home. And yet we wanted to bond with him and the nurses encouraged us to bond with him. And it was just this really bizarre experience of bonding with this baby that we didn't know we would be able to take home still. But being able to hold him and see him and talk to him at the same time and create these memories that we didn't know what we would do with. It was this really, really bizarre, really difficult emotional experience of watching this baby. He was the size of a sheet of paper, try to fight for his life. And every day we were there, we were talking to the doctors, we were monitoring his meds, we were learning how to read the machines and the monitors and trying to figure out, you know, what's the next step and what's the next milestone. It was such a lesson in mindfulness that you really cannot look beyond this particular moment because you just don't know what's going to happen. It is such a precarious situation. But it became our normal. It became our reality. We'd completely forgotten how not normal that is, to be honest. Right. It becomes you because once you do this thing over and over again, it is what your life is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We got to witness some really incredible moments. You know, the baby's eyes are fused until they're about 25, 26 weeks along. And then their eyes open in utero. Well, obviously my son wasn't in utero, but then we got to see him open his eyes for the first time. That was magical beyond belief. And then to hold him for the first time, he was 19 days old when I got to hold him for the first time. And that's a memory that's embedded in my body. I can still remember what it feels like to hold him in my hand. Like I I just remember that, that sensation in my hand still so many years later. We got to see him grow and we got to see him learn how to feed for the first time. We got to see him learn how to breathe for the first time. It was amazing and exhausting and terrifying. And it was just our life. And then 109 days after he was born, the day after his due date, we got the call that he was ready to come home. And so we got to bring him home. Oh, little V. Yeah. (laughs) Little guy, you went home. Yeah. (laughs) And for those of you listening, Parija has a five-year-old now. So this is something that happened a little bit ago. But your ability to recall it, I'm sure it's just indelibly printed in your bones in so many ways. Tell us what he's like and tell us what it's like to have him home. I know from reading so much of what you share that he has his own challenges. There are different like sensory notes, but I don't actually know what it's like. So what's he like and what's it like having him home? Yeah. So it was funny for the longest time we were like, are we really his parents? Who released him to us? <laughs> Do we know what we're doing? <laughs> Which I think a lot of parents just in general can really relate to, right? When you have a, a new baby at home. 
just as a person, which has been really cool to see over the last few years, he is hilarious. He is so funny. He gets jokes and puns. We're bilingual at home. So he makes like bilingual jokes at home, mixing the two languages. He loves to read. We're reading Harry Potter right now and he's so into it. He loves music and singing and dancing and he puts on musicals for us. He like makes tickets for us to come to his show and we watch him put on a musical with his stuffed animals. It's so awesome. (laughs) You know, from the outside, he's teeny tiny. You know, he's five. He looks like he's about three, three and a half. I mentioned earlier, he's on a very high calorie diet because he has trouble with growing. So he needs a very high calorie diet, more calories than most adults that I know need to consume in a day he needs to eat. And he's got chronic lung disease, which is very common for micropremies. You know, the lungs were forced to take in oxygen months before they're actually ready to do it, which means he's got scar tissue in his lungs. And that means colds are not just colds for him. They become very serious. And for the first two and a half years that he was home, he and I were on lockdown because we couldn't risk him getting sick. So other than going to his doctor's appointments or going to therapy appointments, we couldn't go anywhere. No playdates, no playgrounds, no grocery stores, no Target, no restaurants, no place where there were other people, which was horrible for my sanity. And I always tell my husband, I'm pretty sure I have never received all of that. It's not come back to me now that we're back in the world yet. But the first, you know, half of his life basically was indoors and it was just with me. It's worked because now that he's getting a little older, he is able to tolerate getting sick without ending up in the hospital, which is exactly what our goal is. There are challenges and each micro preemie is very different. They all have different challenges. They all have different strengths. But what I can tell you from what I've heard from my friends who have micro preemies is they are little spitfires. They (laughs) are just whatever that will is that they had or that that strength to keep them fighting for their life that doesn't go away when they get home. <laughs> and so that comes with a lot of opinions and a lot of strong-willed, strong-headed <laughs> moments that we have to learn to navigate. That makes a ton of sense. Like if you're born that early, it's like, you know what? Don't mess with me. Here yeah. we go. <laughs> Well, so now this begs the question for me, I'm trying to figure out like, how did this affect your work life and your entrepreneurship journey? Because being on lockdown for two and a half years and going through everything that you've been through, take us to the side of your life that's work and what that looked like. Yeah. So I had to stop working when I landed on bed rest which was week six of my pregnancy. So at that time, I was doing child and family therapy through a community mental health agency nearby. I was teaching psychology courses at UC Berkeley for undergraduate students. I was running my mental health nonprofit that I just started a couple years prior to that. All of that stopped, every last bit of it. I couldn't work on it during pregnancy, which I found hard because I was even though physically I was going through so much mentally, I was still like, okay, well, it would be nice to have something to do to think about or to focus on. Once he was in the NICU, it just was not even an option because it became more than a full-time job to just go to the hospital and live there for almost four months for, you know, 109 days. And then once he came home, he's on lockdown, then it wasn't even an option for me to go back to work because 
he just had so many cares. He was going to appointments three times a week for the first six months of his life. And then it tapered down to two and then tapered down to one. But for a long time, we were very busy doing therapies and keeping him safe at home and going to appointments and things. And so it really wasn't until he turned three and things started getting a little bit easier and a little bit more, there's a little more breathing room that I thought, you know what, it would be really nice to go back to work. Because that was always the plan was to go back to work once he was born. It just took a little bit longer than I expected it to. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just yeah. A little bit. <laughs> How did that affect you emotionally, though? What you're spending so much time taking care and being consumed by someone, which is part of this journey of parenting, but to the extent that it just takes your life and moves in in a completely different direction. How did you fare emotionally and psychologically? And did you have the support you needed? I'll be honest, I don't think I did very well. I was really stressed out for a really long time. And I didn't have the support that I needed. I thought I did. But looking back, I know I didn't. And part of it was because I didn't ask for the help. And part of it is because people didn't know how to help. And at some point, a lot of people just were like, didn't say this to us. They stopped checking in. You know, they stopped asking. They stopped reaching out because this was going on for so long and it didn't seem like there was any end in sight. That said, though, we did have a lot of friends who were very patient with us who understood that they just couldn't meet him for a while. And so there were a lot of friends who had to wait several years before they could meet him because they had children of their own who were always sick and we just couldn't interact that way with the risk of bringing any of that home to him. I don't think I did very well. That stress really caught up to me. I ended up developing an autoimmune disease postpartum, partly due to that stress. I just felt like I owed him my entire life to make up for how much he had to go through because I couldn't stay pregnant. And taking that burden on my shoulders was really, really challenging. And unfair, I recognize now, but at the time it felt justified. And so I just, I couldn't let it go that I had to make up for all that had gone wrong. Oh, the emotional load that we take on. Right? Yes. And then I'm sure that you know so much about this with your psychology background, but our inability to talk about our emotions and to, what is it, digest them and really work through them in supportive communities. It's really, it's so hard in this culture. Yeah. It's so hard. It's so hard. Yes. Fast forward to today in some regards, I see, you know, your website is beautiful. I've listened to your podcast. You're a high risk oh. pregnancy expert. How did you get here? Like, what did you do once you started to be able to like literally go out of the house and, <laughs> and you weren't on lockdown and your little boy is growing up? What did your entrepreneurship journey look like? Yeah. So the idea actually started while I was pregnant, it was towards the end of my pregnancy. And I was so fed up with this idea that nobody is helping women cope with a high-risk pregnancy. And especially when I knew and I personally experienced that our emotional health during this time has a tremendous effect on what's happening in your pregnancy, especially if you've got complications. But there's nobody helping these women. And you end up feeling so helpless. I just wasn't okay with that. So I made a promise to him when he was still in my belly 
it was like two days before he was born. I said, if we both survive this and we get to go home and be a family together, I have to come back and help women in this position. It's just, I have to do it. There's no other question. I'm leaving everything else behind and this is what I have to do. And so fast forward a few years and, you know, he did come home. We did get to be a family. He did survive. He was growing and thriving. I got to go outside again and be a person again, which I'll be honest, took a few months to get used to. <laughs> oh my gosh. And that's when I realized, you know, I, I was led by the lifestyle that I needed to lead, which is I still can't have a full-time job. He still has cares. You know, he still has therapies. He still has needs. So I needed flexibility. And so the idea of an online business seemed to be the perfect solution to not only be able to maintain the lifestyle that I needed to take care of him still, but then it also filled the need of the clientele that I'm working with who also are stuck at home and can't be running around to appointments, even if they were my next door neighbor. They can't do that because they need to be resting or they need to be taking care of their own health. And so it just felt like the perfect solution for everybody to offer my services online. And so that's how that got started. And it officially kicked off last year, 2016. So still relatively new. It took a while to kind of get things going. But well, tell us uh, what you do. finally did. Yeah, tell us what you do and, and what it looks like. Like, what is your business now? Yeah, so it started just with high-risk pregnancy. So I have a program where I do basically wellness consulting for women with high-risk pregnancies to help them have a healthier pregnancy. A lot of the work that I do is stress management to just help them improve the health and wellness of their pregnancy, help them feel more confident and in control of their bodies really show them that they can influence their pregnancy even when everything is blowing up around them and things are going wrong. And so I do all my work online. Sessions are held online. It's a six-week program that I have for them. And it is incredible. And it makes me so happy to work with these women and just see the changes that happen for them over these six weeks is incredible. And then over the last month or two, I've also added postpartum support for women who have experienced a high-risk pregnancy and are now trying to process the grief and the guilt and the trauma of it all. And just recently, I added uh, support, wellness support for women and couples going through infertility as well, specifically if they're going through fertility treatment to help them with that process too, because there's a very clear mind-body connection. And if you're fighting so hard for a life, you deserve, you know, whole person health care. That's what I believe. How do people know that they have a high-risk pregnancy? Is a doctor going to tell them? I'm not asking this question well, but I guess I'll leave it there. Yeah. So most of the time women know because they either develop a complication or they know because of their age, you're automatically considered high-risk if you're over the age of 35, or they're carrying multiples. Or they've had a high-risk pregnancy before in that they've had complications before or they delivered preterm before and that automatically qualifies them as high-risk this time around too. It's a conversation that usually you'll have with your doctor, but most of the women that I talk to end up quite sure like, okay, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a high-risk pregnancy or I'm quite sure I am high-risk even though they just found out they're pregnant. Interesting. What has surprised you about your own entrepreneurship journey? Like in starting this business, you knew very early on that you had to make this. You made a promise to yourself and to your baby boy. What has been new or different about the entrepreneurship journey? I never realized how much personal growth and healing is required to start your own business. 
Ooh, tell me more about that. Ever, ever realized just so much personal work, you know, the mindset work and looking at where you are in your process and how your healing journey and your life journey and, you know, the guilt, the grief, the trauma, whatever it is that you're carrying, how that can transmit into your business and the success of your business and how so much of the success of your business is about looking inward and really just growing yourself as a person in order to grow the business. That was something I'd never expected at all. How did that show up for you? What taught you that? What was one of the lessons that you personally learned? I mean, even to this day, sometimes if I hit up against a roadblock in the business, say, you know, maybe a month that's a little bit slower than others or not hitting my goals or whatever it is. And then I hear myself and how I talk to myself and the the words that are going on in my head. And if I think about them for a second, how much of that is tied into the guilt of what I've been through? Do I feel like I need to make this business work to make up for something in the past, you know, make up for financial loss for my husband because I couldn't work for so long or is, you know, have a successful business to show my son that, hey, I was able to do something amazing because of what you've been through besides, you know, helping you grow. But is there something else tied to that? And so a lot of those internal thoughts are really eye-opening in terms of where there's still grief that's unresolved that I need to really look at and focus on. And that then can change my perspective of what happens next in the business. So instead of getting stuck in that grief and in that guilt or whatever that is, I'm able to take these slow months or not hitting those goals and look at it from a much more strategic perspective instead of getting sucked into it by feeling like, oh, maybe this is one more thing that I'm having trouble doing. I've never heard anybody say it that way, but it's resonating so strongly with me. The idea that like so much of what we have to process emotionally and psychologically and how we have to grow as a person, it's mapped to our entrepreneurship journey. Like it is such a path that's saying to me, I'll say in my experience, you know, can you handle this? How does this work? What do you do when this kind of situation arises? And it's a constant like reminder of, oh, this is how I show up in the world. How do I grow with this? Like, how do I grow? Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. It is such an honor to have you on this podcast. I know that we could talk for hours and hours and hours. I will have to have you back for a second episode. But in the meantime, as we wrap up, where can people find you on the internet? And where can they listen to your podcast? Yeah, sure. So you can find me on my website at parijatdeshpande.com. That's P-A-R-I-J-A-T-D-E-S-H-P-A-N-D-E.com. And I'm kind of all over social media. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Barijat Desh, P-A-R-I-J-A-T-D-E-S-H. And you can listen to my podcast, which is called Delivering Miracles. It's on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. And we talk about everything from infertility to high-risk pregnancy, prematurity, NICU, and then healing after it's all over. Wow. I will link all of that up in the show notes for everybody. So you can have the links straight there so you can find out more, especially if this really resonated for you, as I'm sure it will for so many listeners. Thank you for taking the time and for sharing your story on our podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being a listener of the show. A few more things before we end this episode. First, If you know of a woman or a friend that would benefit from this show, send them a link to our website at startuppregnant.com. 
So many of you have already reached out and shared your stories, what this podcast is doing for you. And for that, I am so grateful. So if you know of somebody that would love to listen in, or you think that these stories would really hit at home for somebody, feel free to send it along. Second, if you've got a story that you need to share or tell, head over to startuppregnant.com and send us a note. We have had so much reader mail already, and your stories mean the world to us. We are proudly listener-sponsored, so if you want to sponsor the show and hear more episodes, head over to our Patreon page and you can buy us a cup of coffee or two or three. We'll take many cups of coffee. If you want any of the show notes or links from this particular episode, all of the references and tools and tips that we talk about are always posted on startuppregnant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.